This is Teaching for Student Success. I'm Stephen Robineau. Episode transcripts will now become standard thanks to a partnership with Trent. Trent, transcribing audio and video to text. Translations will be coming soon. To learn more, go to trent.com, T-R-I-N-T dot com. All right, so here we are today. Higher ed classrooms look different today than they did 40 years ago. Our current students in higher education are more diverse than ever by a variety of demographic measures, race, age, first-generation status, and undoubtedly by other measures as well. Unfortunately, many of these demographic groups perform less well than the majority group as measured by a variety of measures, again, average GPA, for example, and graduation rates. While differences in graduation rates are not the sole responsibility of the faculty, there can be little doubt that what goes on in the classroom has the potential to significantly improve progress towards graduation. So, we continue to discuss how we can address these inequities by providing learning environments that are intentionally and thoughtfully designed to help all our students succeed and to close these gaps, these performance gaps or opportunity gaps or equity gaps. Today, we will talk about Inclusive Excellence with Dr. Oscar Fernandez, Associate Professor of Mathematics at Wellesley College. Dr. Fernandez has served as the Faculty Director of the Forsheimer Learning and Teaching Center at Wellesley College and is currently the Program Director for the Howard Hughes Medical Institute Inclusive Excellence Grant, which is, and I quote, charged with creating a community of faculty, staff, and students who are engaged in the continuing process of increasing institutional capacity for inclusion of all students and excellence in STEM and beyond. Welcome, Oscar. Thank you for joining us on Teaching for Student Success. Thank you for having me, Steve. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for coming. I am, I am too. So let's start with a few definitions, or at least one. How do you define inclusive excellence? Sure. You know, this is a term that Certainly, if you just go on Google and you type in inclusive excellence, you know, as with many other terms or words, you'll get a plethora of possible definitions. I'll tell you how I kind of uh, view it. And this is coming mostly from experience, but also informed by some of the the dialogue that's been going on between students and faculty in classrooms and, and some of the issues that you mentioned in the intro there. For me, there's two portions of the term. There's inclusive and excellence. I think in higher ed, we all as educators certainly strive for excellence, not just professionally and perhaps the scholarship that we engage in, perhaps um, the pedagogy, the teaching, but in terms of our students as well. We want to have successful students and successful classrooms. So that is sort of the second half. And that's the part where I think it's easier to bring, you know, perhaps we'll talk later about an equality versus equity. Uh, it's easier, I think, to talk about equality in the context of excellence. We want all students to be excellent. So that's sort of an inequality lens. The inclusion part, the first part of inclusive excellence, that's a different ballgame. Inclusion, from my perspective, is more certainly uh, contextual, ecological, environmental. It's more interdependent. It's less amenable, I would say, to things like uh, topics of um, of equality. Uh, so inclusion is very personal. A person can feel included or excluded in an environment that otherwise might, from the outside, appear to be thriving. Whereas, you know, excellence is something that 
depending on metrics, uh, some of the ones you mentioned earlier in the intro from the outside might seem like the, the class is thriving if they have, uh, you know, they're, they're scoring high on exams or something by, by some metric. So I, I see inclusive excellence as a really great opportunity. Uh, it's many things. It's a framework. It's a paradigm, but I see it as an opportunity for educators to come together and really think about those two sides, what they do and how their students interact and engage with them. And then also with the institution, with the broader community, there's that personal side of inclusion. And that to me tilts toward equity. And then there's the perhaps little less personal side of excellence. And that to me tilts toward equality. So issues of equity and equality to me are wrapped up at the core of the term inclusive excellence and, and in some way inform how as an educator, you might bring those together to ensure that every student thrives, which to me is sort of the coalescence of those equity equality pursuits. Thank you. So as you were talking about excellence, it made me realize it's a bar, it's a threshold. Exactly. Right. And at least one way to think about excellence is that, right? And I would imagine some faculty are thinking about excellence. It's, oh, I maintain excellence in my course. Mm -hmm. I have a bar. Students have to uh, achieve above this bar in order to get through my class. Mm -hmm. That itself can be a barrier. And so uh, how do we, hmm, there's ways that excellence is going to help. And there's, there's thoughts about excellence that might, might hinder one's adoption of certain classroom practices that might help all students succeed. Hmm. I, I love that observation because it, it is the proverbial, like we, we have un, unpeeled the first uh, layer of the onion. <laughs> I'll just make it very particular here. So, so I'm teaching calculus two this semester. I mean, I have students in my class and I would like them to all be excellent students. So, so there's the word all. So I'm, you know, the mathematician in me is going to intervene with, with, with uh, pointing out certain qualifiers that I think are important. And, and that I think is a statement of excellence. I would like all of my students to be excellent. The thing is that if I just consider whether or not I'm meeting that goal from my perspective, I'm not really doing my students uh, a service in that sense because I, I might think that they are excelling, whereas in fact, some of them might feel that they are not. So there's also that distinction between what do I think versus how do my students feel? In higher education and education in general, there has always been the affective versus the cognitive, and it doesn't have to be confrontational. And certainly we saw this you know, most clearly during the pandemic. Most of us educators had all sorts of often unconscious assumptions about what our students had access to. And then the pandemic rolled around and most of us went remote and all of those inequalities and inequities just became clear to see students. Some students didn't have computers at home. Some students didn't have internet access. They had to go to parking lots in order to zoom into their classrooms. This has prompted all sorts of changes in practices, checking in with students, asking them, do they have the support and the resources they need? And so again, it's closing that gap between a sense of, I know what my students need. I know what my students have to the next step, I think would be talking to students and asking them, are they getting what they need? Do they, do they have what they need? And then the next step to this more inclusion part of like, in what ways can I as the instructor help you get what you need, go where you want to go, um, become part of your trajectory, your journey through the institution. So I, I, I totally agree that from my perspective, excellence is sort of almost like a standard, almost a bar. And there I do want equality. I want all my students to excel in my course. 
But if I start from that perspective and I just listen to that statement, I want all my students to excel, I, I'm defining an output. But the inputs are students, right? Those are the people that are going to excel. And no two students are, are created equal. So I have to bring in the inclusion part. Or and, and if I don't, then I personally don't think that I'm really addressing the stated objective, which is hoping to, that all my students will excel in my course. So two things here. COVID then became a time of, maybe this is dangerous to say, an awakening of the faculty across the country and administrators in the entire system of the needs of our students. And suddenly we, we, we have a window into their lives that we didn't have before. Yes. Right. We've had these students before, during, and sort of post-COVID, whatever stage we're in now. Yet this COVID opportunity really made a lot of people think about, oh, my students don't have access that I you never even considered. Right. Like you said, internet at home for one. We had faculty who didn't have internet at home during this as well. It wasn't just students. Very interesting. Okay, so that's interesting. Can you take a moment to define affective and cognitive in this case? Because not everybody uses those terms every day. Certainly cognitive, I think they do, but maybe not affective. Sure, sure. I, you know, I, I'll, I'll say I'm not a developmental psychologist, <laughs> so I'll put an asterisk on that. Affective, at least in the way that I've come to understand it, refers to how you feel about the experiences that you're having. And we all know, or maybe have heard about Bloom's hierarchy of, of learning. And that is a very cognitive hierarchy. I believe at the bottom of the hierarchy is something like a recall. And at the top is something like a synthesize or create. Right. As an educator, we in the West in general are more prone to for all sorts of historical, uh, social, cultural reasons, focus on the cognitive aspects of education in our classrooms. And I think it's only recently, perhaps maybe 10, 20, 30 years, that we really started to realize and value the importance of the affective. How do students feel? Mm -hmm. Do students feel like they're thriving? Do they feel like they're making progress? I've had students before who are, who are earning a minuses, A's in the course, and, and still they feel like something is off. Some students set a very high bar for themselves. So even if they're earning a 90% to them, that means they could be earning a 95. Nevertheless, it makes the point that just if you pick a standard and you ignore the human being that is trying to meet a different standard, then there's a disconnect there, and that's going to show up somewhere. So the affect part, and it, it goes into things like belonging, which is a big aspect of what's we're talking about in, in inclusive excellence and, and just throughout education. So that, that idea of how do students feel? Do they feel like they're making progress? Do they feel like they're excelling? Do they feel they have the supports that they need? I think is a crucial aspect of, of the endeavor. So you mentioned how they feel. You've talked about how the faculty feels. Hopefully the, the way the faculty feels is based on evidence. <laughs> but it may or may not be. Hopefully it's based on how they're performing that would then depend on what we're measuring and what we think we're measuring. And I think there's a, I think there's a huge disconnect there. Yes. What are they learning? Are they learning what they need to learn? Uh, this whole question of assessment. So I want to, we want to dive into those questions and we want to talk about belonging a lot. So you sort of set out this framework for inclusive excellence. So, so you've defined the term, we've talked around it a, a lot. And you, you have this framework for sort of three elements that you implement to promote inclusive excellence, I think. I hope, I hope I'm saying this correctly. Yeah. You talk about universal design for learning. You talk about inclusive pedagogies. 
and you talk about assessment, assessment as a tool, assessment for learning and assessment of learning. Right. So maybe you could talk a little bit about UDL, Universal Design for Learning, inclusive pedagogies a little, but I really want to spend some time on this assessment as of and for learning. Sure. Yeah. And, and first thing I'll say is that these are all frameworks that, that exist out there. And part of what I did uh, and still do, but certainly during the pandemic, which overlapped with my term as, as a faculty director of our, our learning and teaching center, was to try to find ways to bring these frameworks together in a way that the faculty could really pull into their courses. This is March 2020, uh, universities were closing down, try to find a way to, to pull these frameworks together and produce something that faculty could easily use to pivot their courses to remote teaching, to hybrid instruction, or to massed in-face learning. We at Wellesley, where I teach Wellesley College, we switched also, it was another major switch from a semester system to a, a quarter system. So, I mean, there were, there were just lots and lots of changes that everyone was having to, to deal with that made life difficult. But to me, in, in searching around for frameworks that could hit that sweet spot between something that you could actually do, perhaps over a summer, redesign your course, uh, and things that were evidence-based, there's certainly a lot you can do, but without knowing whether if you do it, it will work, it may not be a good use of your time, energy, and effort. UDL is one of those which is really in that sweet spot. So it stands for Universal Design for Learning. And this is, uh, if you if you go around the internet and you search around, there's really solid evidence base on this. And the framework itself, I think, if I remember, has sort of three pillars. I like to summarize it as, if you have a class in front of you, there are 30 students. Starting from the basic assumption, but but clearly true that no two students are alike, then you start asking, in what way then do they differ? And you can come up with several different dimensions. And UDL as a framework is is intended to address all those different dimensions, or, or at least the most the ones you most run into in the classroom, and then to provide you with some evidence base of what has been shown to work to help that particular difference of that student. You might have, for example, neurodiversity in your classroom. You might have students on the spectrum. You might have students not on the spectrum. So UDL goes through some of these differences in, in, uh, in your students and, and helps you uncover what some of the best practices are there. UDL is, is great. And we've, we've had Kirsten Bailing and Thomas Tobin on the podcast great. to talk about their book. So there is a great book out there. And yeah, UDL provides a way to realize maybe that when you provide access, this is all often about access, when you provide access to students who need it for a specific reason, you know, you've got single parents or something, maybe there's time issues, that you help that student. But then suddenly you realize you're helping all the students right. because all these students have other issues in their life that tie in and, and, and need the same. It helps them as well. So, so you find that you, you stop making individual accommodations for students as you increase, increase your use of UDL and you provide mm, opportunities for all students using, using these designs. And I love that because one of the ways that I think of the shift in the classroom and in pedagogy and to some extent in education over the last maybe 75 years is as on a spectrum, and, and, and this is not unique to, to this insight is not unique to me, on a spectrum between sort of um, instructor-centered on one end all the way to student-centered on the other. Right. Back in the olden days, instructor-centered meant that I showed up, I taught my classes. If if someone understood it, great. If no one didn't, did, didn't didn't matter. Again, I, I think of excellence 
as a slippery slope in a way toward that sort of thinking. Because I can show up and say, here are my standards for the course. And whoever meets these standards gets the A. Whoever doesn't, I'm sorry. And I think as time has gone on and college populations have gotten more diverse, so I think a lot of this has been driven by demographics, that sort of approach has not worked very well in general. And so there's been a sliding toward the more student-centered spectrum, side of the spectrum. To do that, you really have to understand the students. You can't just show up and, and do the same thing you've been doing and expect the same level of success when the demographics are shifting in your classroom. I see UDL, I see inclusive pedagogy, I see um, this sort of three-tiered approach to assessment as versions of, of this realization that if we really are going to help every student thrive, we really do need to get to know our students. Sometimes that's hard for faculty because, sure, it takes a lot of work. Some of that, some of that work is, can be emotional. Students are, are whole selves and they have all sorts of um, lived experiences that, that might be difficult for, for someone to, to um, interact and, and engage with. On the other hand, at the end of that connection is really a building of trust and belonging and community that then to me strengthens everything else that we as educators are actually trying to do, which is make sure that all students excel. Yeah. You hope that's what all educators are there for. <laughs> I think, I think there's some realignments sometimes that are required. Can you think of a concrete example of UDL thing that you've, that you've actually implemented in your classroom that made a difference? Can you give, give us an example? Yes. I mean, I, so I consider flipped classrooms as one of the, I, I put that under the UDL umbrella for a variety of reasons. Over time, I have noticed in, in my courses in particular, but not just in my courses and not just in my institution that due to a variety of factors that, and challenges that students face, it is just harder for the average student, let's say, to, to sit in a classroom for 60 minutes and just concentrate. I teach math. Right. So other disciplines are, are more discussion based and there's perhaps a, a different kind of culture and expectation about what's going to happen in math. We do our best, but at some point we do have to, to write up some equations and, and, and discuss a proof or, or draw a graph. One of the things that I've noticed is that, again, as the demographics have shifted, students coming in that haven't had experiences with mathematics where they've been doing a lot of that. If they're lumped in with students who have, then all of a sudden you get the inequality. And then you as the educator, what do you do in the classroom, right? And you're almost put in an, an impossible position. Do you teach math in a certain way? Do you change the way you teach? And you hear in education, you teach to the middle. And I think that that is just a terrible thing to feel as an educator like you have to do. So from my perspective, flipped classrooms does a lot to remedy a lot of those issues. First of all, students learn at different rates. So this is one dimension of differentiation that you can afford students if you switch to something like a flipped classroom. Rather than, in my case, for example, um, requiring my students to learn or, or master the content that I'm teaching them in 60 minutes, every single one of them, in the same lecture, with a flipped classroom, I record videos and I, and I do um, also uh, lecture notes they have the, the chance, right, to take the time that they need. Granted, they can't take five years, but at least they can take more than 60 minutes if they need it, right? So that's the, the differentiation aspect. Another one which Saul Khan has, has talked about for eons now 
and it's simple and, and it's somewhat generational also is the ability to pause your instructor and rewind. <laughs> Again, in a classroom, certain groups of students are much more comfortable raising their hands and stopping the professor and saying, I don't understand what you just said. Can you repeat yourself or explain it in a different way? For some groups of students, often racially correlated, that is just not something you do. And, you know, even in my family, my mother told me, you should never bother the professor. They're important people. Don't go to office hours unless you have a very good reason to be there, uh, a very important question. So there are cultural aspects to this too, you know, not, not implying that my experience was general, but it existed. I mean, that's my lived experience. So in a flip classroom, it's a different ballgame. So if you record videos, if you provide lecture notes, is it better than the real thing? Uh, you know, I, I think no. Right. So I think I, I tell my students there's sort of a constellation of resources I'm providing you. I'm giving you videos that you can pause, record, access whenever you want. I'm giving you printed material, right? If you want to read things and I, and I try to make those accessible, that's another aspect of UDL. Uh, and then there's the real version, the me, right? I'm in the classroom. So you can talk to me, you can engage with me. And then certainly you can, you can send me emails and all that stuff, but I give them multiple. And this is sort of one of the parts of the framework, multiple means of engagement. Because I know that for some people, for all sorts of reasons, one of these might click more than the other. And, and I don't want to predispose everyone to require excellence, if you will, in one particular mode of engagement in order to do well in my course. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that example. That's a great one. So let's talk about briefly about inclusive pedagogies. UDL is one approach that you bring to provide inclusive excellence. Utah also talk about inclusive pedagogy. Do you want to talk about that sort of generally and then maybe give us an example or two that you use? Sure. Yeah. So inclusive pedagogy is another one of these kind of umbrella frameworks. Whereas you might think of just pedagogy as, you know, an attempt, at least from the part of the faculty member to think about how they teach, perhaps in what way they teach it, and uh, whether that's that's reaching the students or engaging students. Inclusive pedagogy, again, adds that focus on inclusion. Again, I might show up and, and teach the way I teach, what I teach, and how I teach it, but it might not be resonating with the students in front of me. If I don't apply that question or, or filter to what I'm doing, it may not be helpful to the students that are in front of me. So inclusion is, is I think, a big filter, a big lens, probably better word that you can apply. So for inclusive pedagogy, you might, for example, think a bit more deeply or critically. And I, I should also mention along with your students, you know, this doesn't have to be far removed. And I'm happy to talk about things like setting class norms or other ways of engaging students in this discussion in a co-creation way in a way that gives them agency over over the course and what happens. But so for inclusive pedagogy, you bring in that aspect of inclusion, which necessarily opens up a dialogue and a conversation ongoing with your students about ways in which the classroom can feel more inclusive to them, that they feel that they belong, that that you and they create a community of shared safe spaces where they feel uh, supported to ask questions, to, to be vulnerable, to have, to not know answers. To me, this is all part of the inclusion part because every student has some aspects of their experience in your course where perhaps they wish it were different. And if you give them an opportunity to talk about that and you create a culture where that is normalized 
and there's there's no there's, there's not penalized there's no repercussions other than things get better then i think students by and large have just phenomenal insights and then we educators have phenomenal blind spots so it's like a marriage made in heaven as far as i'm concerned <laughs> so let me ask a specific question then so there are groups of students who will never ask you a question in class and i suspect in your many years of teaching you still have groups that well, maybe have never asked mm -hmm. in many years. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little about setting class norms, for example. When you have any discussion in class, how have you provided opportunities? I'm putting you on the spot yeah. because I don't know that you have, yeah. but I'm going to assume you have. Yeah. How have you provided opportunities for your students who just will not talk in class? How have you provided opportunities for them to provide you the input you're requesting? Yes. Great question. And I'm going to give you lots of great resources and, and anyone out there who's listening. Um, again, these are not all me. I'm, I'm more of a curator and aggregator than anything else. Sure. The first day of class, one of the things I always do is I spend a lot of time doing community building activities. The intent is to not just set the tone, but also start building that community so that we all feel more comfortable engaging with each other, being vulnerable, talking to each other, being honest. And th that's a tall order to do when you have a class full of students and they're just getting to know each other. But one thing that I find really fun are icebreakers. There's all sorts of options out there. I'll give an example of one that I use often that just gets everybody talking right away, right? A good icebreaker is low stakes. It is also fun. And at, at least in the crowds that, that I am um, move in, an icebreaker like the following fits all that criteria. You know, you have a group of, of uh, 30 students that say, and you say, okay, you know, the people around you, let's get in groups of four or five or just turn around or something. Mm -hmm. the, the four or five of you are starting a band. Name your band. And then another version is the four or five of you are, are um, starting a, a restaurant and uh, you're thinking about your first dish. Name the dish. So variations of this, and of course, you can go in different ways. The point is that it's low stakes, right? So people will start talking right away and they'll say, well, I like beans. And someone else will say, well, I like, I don't know, uh, yogurt. And then the idea of mashing these together makes it fun because you come up with some crazy names for these things. I think especially on the first day when people are, are, are nervous, they're not quite sure how, you know, they fit into the mm -hmm. classroom, getting people talking to each other and having a shared experience built not on grades or, or you know, prerequisites, not on any of that stuff, just on the humanity in the room of people talking to each other and just being in fellowship. Uh, I think that is really a great way to start a class. I'll just mention one other one because because I am a mathematician. So this one I, I found on the internet. I can't remember the the, the person that uh, that did this, but you know I can dig it up later if your listeners are interested. Uh, it's called the um, personality coordinates, and I pair this with something else called the uh, the who I am sheet. So I have a who I am sheet, and I give this out. And this is you've probably seen this before. It has you know my, my favorite hobby, my favorite foods, uh, the person I look up to, things, and a self portrait por a portion. So I, I give this out to students before the class starts, and I ask them to fill it out. And I tell them, bring it to class the first day. If they don't bring it, I have, I have sheets there. And I explain like what it is that we're going to use this for. We're going to do an activity where we're going to use these parts of our identity and put ourselves on this personality coordinates. So again, it's a very Matthew nerdy, but it works very well for the students I teach. 
And the personality coordinates, you know, imagine four dots arranged kind of at the vertices of a square. And there's an axis. There's an x-axis, a y-axis. So the idea is you tell, you put students in groups of four. You tell students, label the x-axis so that the four of you put each one, each person on one dot and label the x-axis so that it makes sense. Same thing with the y-axis. I mean, I tell them, you know, the x-axis could be how far away you live from this classroom, right? Mm. So, you know, if you're closer and then you're, you're on the lower left dot, if you're further away, you're on the lower right dot. But I tell them, don't use that. Don't use anything that is easy. I really want you all to talk to each other. And I'd like you to use your who I am sheets to actually talk about the pieces of your identity and label the axes accordingly. And so I do these in sequence. This is, this is all stuff I do on the first day. I start with the icebreaker, just get people talking, very low stakes. And then I move to this kind of different activity because it's a bit more personal. So I, I'm, I am asking students to, hopefully, they don't have to, I tell them, to hopefully dig into aspects, dimensions of their identity and find commonalities such that they can fill out this grid. And that's day one. And then there's other things I do day two, day three, that kind of scaffold and, and move this along. But by the end of about, usually we have three courses in the first week, three class meetings. By the end of the first week, pretty much everyone in my class is happy talking to the other person. And they've gotten to know them in a way that's just different. Not as, my name is X, I, I was born in Y, and I'm here because it's a distribution requirement. Mm -hmm. That's a different way of getting to know students. In, in, in these other ways, they've gotten to know them as, as human beings and as sort of hopefully whole selves. Okay, that's that's cool. I've pulled up a personality traits coordinate map <laughs> that somebody's developed that has a variety of criteria that you put yourself on, and then it maps you on a matrix. Oh, there you go. So yeah, there's I, there's I think there's lots of them out there. That's pretty interesting. So that's great. So that's how they get comfortable with each other. Hopefully, they never move seats during the quarter now for you. Right. Right. What do you do to encourage them to communicate with you? You're the faculty member and you're scary. There is a demographic group that that traditionally doesn't go to office hours. Yeah. Your mother encouraged you <laughs> virtually to never go. Right. So how does a faculty member break through that cultural barrier or that personal barrier? What do you do to encourage them, to help them communicate with you in whatever means? Sure. Yeah. I mean, first thing I'll say is that if you are the type of educator who does things like this already you are you are lowering that barrier for a student to engage with you because you know you are not then probably this is this is till day one hopefully not the type of educator who just shows up and writes the class uh of course a name on the board and just starts going off so i think even doing this is sort of an implicit invitation to the students that, that this is going to be a different sort of course. This is not going to be a course where you are one of 30 and you're just a number on my spreadsheet. This is a course where I have taken the time to think about on day one, your experiences with each other. And that's going to say a lot about the educator and, you know, standing in the room. But to, to your more direct question, I participate in these different icebreakers. I participate in the personality coordinates. I upload my own version of the Who I Am sheets to our sort of course management to, to show the same sorts of vulnerabilities, right? Who are the people I look up to uh, is one of the questions. There's a one of the fascinating aspects, you know, I, I wish I had some training in psychology. Um, there's a self-portrait on the sheet that, uh, that I upload. Hmm. It's fascinating 
what students draw, how they draw it, who else is in the picture. It's a self-portrait. Some, some students put their families in the picture. Hmm. And I asked them about that, and they tell me, this, this is part of who I am. I interpret the word self more broadly than just me as an individual. Hmm. So again, you get so much richness. I mentioned earlier, students are just phenomenal insights. You get so much richness from mm-hmm. students, and it's really simple to do. You just have to ask <laughs> and then follow up and engage and support. It is amazing, right, as an instructor. Students will pretty much do, within reason, anything you ask mm-hmm. them to do. Mm-hmm. They're very compliant. I used to have them line up in a conga line to, to demonstrate some biological principle. Yeah. And they would do it. I'd have, I'd have hundreds of students that would line up in a room for me. Then there were Sammy. I'm going to name her. I'm going to call her out. <laughs> she would roll her eyes at me. Right? This was many years ago. She would roll her eyes at me, but, um, but she would, nonetheless, she would do it. To follow up on that, not, not on Sammy particularly, but, <laughs> and this is a tip that I got from a, from a fellow colleague at Wellesley early on when I started in 2011 at Wellesley. I have found it really helpful and instructive to tell students why you're doing something, both before you do it, while you're doing it, after, you know, to just open up those lines of communication and keep them open and, and engage them in dialogue. So in the pre-email that I send welcoming students to the course, telling them about some of these activities, I explain why I'm doing these things. When we set class norms, this is now about day two that we do this scaffolded with the day one experiences where they can now are more comfortable talking to each other and talking to me. Mm-hmm. Part of day two is setting class norms. When I do that, I also explain, right, what what the purpose of this is and and I engage them. I give them some norms that that I provide and I say this is a co-creative shared space. So I'd like you also to provide some norms and I'd like to facilitate the conversation so that you can talk to each other in small groups to come up with these norms. And with the magic of technology, this is one of the things that to some extent came out of all of us having to to go some version of remote during the pandemic or, or just get better trained in that. With a Google Doc, students can go on the Google Doc and they can start adding their own norms. And again, it's fascinating to see some students, you know, the students use caps, they use underlined bold color. They will take another student's norm that has been added and they'll put a sub bullet or they'll emphasize something. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're having conversations in real time in ways that, that I don't know, I certainly wasn't having in my undergraduate courses when I, when I went to college. Can you give an example or two of the, of norms that students have proposed that you really like a lot that, and that come up all the time? Yes. A, a version of, be vulnerable and be okay with being vulnerable is a version of that usually comes up in some form or another. Hmm. I teach math. Mathematics has the perception of being either you get it or you don't. Either you're born with it or you're not. A lot of these dichotomies. And there's almost never anything in the middle. And vulnerability is, again, very affective and it is very embodied and it is almost non-cognitive and it's almost almost like not something you're supposed to do or feel in a math classroom mm-hmm. at least that's that's uh, maybe a perception that many students get and and it's nice to see students in these uh, class norms activities pushing back against that and saying no it's okay if you don't know the answer it's okay for you to say that it's okay for you to be working with someone to help them you shouldn't feel like if you help them, somehow your the class average goes up and then you get a worse grade. A lot of these things are so exactly tied up 
in these sorts of transactional modes of education that I think hopefully are starting to, to go away. So that's an interesting one. So students are saying to each other effect, essentially, that it's okay to, to make mistakes in this class. Right. So a class norm is go ahead and say it. No one's going to make fun of you if you shout out the wrong answer. Yes. And it's a class norm is, hey, it's okay for another student to help you to get there. You can, or it's okay for you to ask. So they're, they're articulating directly how they want to treat one another relative to these issues because they're many of them are afraid right of many things Uh, uh, they're afraid of the math they're afraid of being wrong of looking and i'm going to air quote stupid you know whatever right they're afraid of these things and they don't want to right and again you know going back to this idea you know all you have to do is ask i mean all of this we know as educators this is all going on in the background we just have to think about our own experiences in the classroom there were times when we felt, well, I'm not sure if I want to ask that question. Or we might even ask right. a question and preface it by saying, this is probably a stupid question, but, and then ask it anyway. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that I start with some class norms on, on my end, and then I mm-hmm. invite them to, to contribute, but also to replace or critique the ones I start with. There's no reason why I should be the authority on class norms. Sure. Most of these class norms, I, I went through an excellent training from the facilitated by the Science Museum of Minnesota. And this was a couple, few years ago now, mm-hmm. the Ideal Center, and that's an acronym. I'm happy to talk about that. But many of these norms come from that training. So I'll just, I'll just read a few of them because each one of them I think okay. is, is very powerful. So here's the first one. Listen with the possibility of being changed. Speak with the promise of being heard. If you start with that, that is a, a powerful statement that that we are all going to listen with the possibility of being changed and speak with the promise of being heard. That's a powerful norm. It's great. Another one here is be present and be your best self. Some of them are short and sweet. I could keep going. These are, again, some of the ones that that I contributed. But the students, when they read this, and, and we have a version of student evaluations that we get comments back, I usually get some handful of students, you know, a good percentage mentioning specifically this. So they'll remember, of course, the first day of class, this is the second day of class, mm-hmm. that we did this activity and we did a class norms activity. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I think setting class norms is becoming more common. I suspect it's still not very common, particularly in the sciences. Yeah. I don't know. But I think Exactly as you said, it's a great way to start the conversation and to help students feel more comfortable with the complete environment, right? And to feel welcome, right? To feel welcome and seen. We will get to ideal. We will get there. (laughs) But I want to stop. I want to talk about one last aspect of these three frameworks that you started with for inclusive excellence. And the last one was assessment as learning, assessment for learning, and assessment of learning. Mm-hmm. And when I read your piece about that, I just found that a really interesting way to think about assessment because the dichotomy that I've, that I'm used to talking about is formative assessment and summative assessment. Okay. Formative and summative. Finally, those words have been pounded in my head and I, I, I get it. Right. Right. But I think that, I think this way assessment as of and for is really interesting. So Let's talk about that for a bit. Yeah, yeah, great. This is another one of these frameworks that I ran into a few years ago. I want to say that it originated either in Canada or Australia. 
if you go down the rabbit hole long enough, you'll, you'll find the origins. It resonated with me because in addition to flip classrooms, I also have a, a I, I would say non-traditional to, to keep it value neutral approach to assessment. It's a version of mastery grading. So it tries to give students, just like the foot classrooms do, more time to demonstrate that they've mastered content or at least made progress and then rewards them for doing that and also does not penalize them. So if students, for example, try something again, they did worse than the first time around. I say, I'm not going to lower your grade for that. You know, just I have evidence you knew it well. At some point, something happened in the intervening. We should talk about it, but I'm not going to change the grade. So with that in mind, you know, this, this framework of assessment as of and for does have a sort of a Venn diagram with summative and formative. When a student is in an office hour of mine or, or we're in a classroom and, and we're working together, all three of these aspects of assessment are going on. There's assessment of learning. So I am certainly doing that, and to some extent they're doing that themselves if they're working on a math problem and, and they're, you know, they get to the final uh, answer and they check whether it's correct. They're assessing, they're assessing their learning, I'm assessing their learning. And then there's assessment for learning. So this is kind of the whole point of, of homework or of practice problems. So I've, I've moved away. I actually don't give homework at all in any of my courses. So I just give practice problems because I want them again to have this opportunity to practice. And I want practice to be normalized in the classroom and also discuss what it's really intended to do, which is to hone your, your skills and, and your proficiency and competency. So that's a version of assessment for learning. I'm assessing you not so that I can, I can summatively stamp and say, this is a B level work, but I'm, I'm assessing you so that you learn assessment for learning. Yeah. But you're not really assessing them. That's right. Because they don't turn it in. So it, it, this is not you. This is really them in the case of practice problems. They're doing practice problems and they can, they're assessing their own learning. Yes. It's a great point because it's one of those, you know, going back to this interdependence, right? I, I certainly don't, I tell them I don't collect the practice problems. However, because of the flipped classroom structure, we start the practice problems in class. And then I go around and I work with them and they work in groups. So it's a shared, you know, experience that we're all sort of working on math together. Mm -hmm. That being said, I as the instructor did choose to make this a component of my course. So I may not be mm -hmm. explicitly, deliberately doing the, the sort of checking, if you will, but I built this into the framework of the course. I get that. Again, sort of getting back to where I started with intentional design, right? Yes. You've intentionally designed this. And this assessment for learning mm -hmm. is a moment that they can reflect back. Exactly. At least the way you've designed it. I mean, the assessment for learning could be something that you grade. Yes, it's a low stakes quiz. Right. You collect the work at the end of the class just to look at it and see where people are having problems. Right. Those could be assessments for learning that are, are graded or ungraded or whatever that you participate in. But the way you've designed it for this particular class, they're assessing themselves. You're giving them, I'm going to use this word, a metacognitive moment to look at how they're doing. Right, right. And so the, the last piece of the framework assessment as learning is kind of what it sounds like. There are various aspects, I guess, of the course that one might, as the educator, build in to promote learning. Certainly mm -hmm. the lecture or the textbook or 
handouts, we don't often think of assessment itself as something that can promote learning. And this is the part of that framework, which, which I guess is most eye-opening. And again, it's, it's a different lens through which you can view a core component of the course, which is the assessment system. And you can ask yourself, does my assessment system itself promote learning? Clearly, it's an assessment system. It's intended to assess learning. That's the of part. And then when students are doing it, you might have them do it in a way that teaches them something. That's assessment for learning. But assessment as learning does the thing itself promote learning. And I think, you know, in a very simple example that comes to mind is there was a time, especially in math, where it was, it was quite popular to have students write their own exam questions. The cynics would say the faculty just don't have time, so they'll have the students write the exam questions. But I think the, the core nugget there, which maps onto this assessment as learning, is if you're a student, and rather than just taking the exam and solving the math problem, if you're sitting down and you're trying to create your own math problem, that involves learning. You create a problem that says, you know, give me a, a Pythagorean triple, and, and you claim the answer is three, four, six. That's not a Pythagorean triple. Three squared plus four squared is not six squared. Five is the one you're looking for. Right. In the process of trying to create an assessment, you are learning about the assessment. You're learning about the types of responses, solutions you might expect from students. It is another one of these metacognitive moments. So, so anyway, that's the part of the framework that has also been really useful for me as, as I structure the courses to, to try to have these three components in them. Right. This is assessment as learning, right? Right. So I'm going to point everybody to episode four, where I talk with Jeff Karpicki about retrieval-based learning, mm -hmm. which is exactly what you're talking about, that the way you reinforce your learning is to test yourself constantly. One of the best practices. And the recall, the recall of information is how you reinforce the changes in your brain that support learning. So retrieval-based practice, there's loads of evidence out there about how it works and how well it works. I love that you mentioned that because one of the things that I am really aware of, and I think more of us as educators and really at any level, as parents, as administrators, should be even more aware of, and it's sort of a basic axiom. If you're going to ask students to do something, educate them to do it and to do it well. Give them support and resources. It sounds so obvious, but the research coming out from the science of learning is an ex a prime example of where we, in general, specifically in higher ed, a little less so in K-12, through but still, we're kind of failing our students. We're asking them to show up to the classroom to take notes. Do we teach them how to take notes well? No, we don't. Mm -hmm. We're asking them to take an exam, timed exam. Do we teach them? No, we don't. Right. And sure, there have been for a while college success skills, but that has a stigma associated with it. And especially if you're from an underrepresented group, it's like a doubly bad stigma. So one of the things I do in my classes, it's on my syllabus. It's, it's what we do. We talk about retrieval practice. We talked about space. We talk about space practice. We talk about interleaving. We talk about all the science of learning. And I, and I, I, I tell them and I give them the research and I say, don't willy nilly use this. Let's understand it. And I scaffold it. So we spend the semester talking about it. And I give them the, uh, the, the, the links to the studies where sometimes you do want to use one strategy over another, right? Interleaving is not so well if you really just want to learn something, a concrete thing, and just know it right away. And again, if we don't do this as educators for our students, yet on the back end, we expect that somehow they magically figure it out and show up and excel. 
goes to that inclusion part, right? We, we've got the excellent standard, but some students have, for whatever reason, had this training or, or had, you know, run into these resources. Not everyone has. Right, exactly. So now I'm going to point people to episode seven <laughs> with, with Mark McDaniel called Learning is a Skill. Right. Why don't we teach people how to learn? Yes. It's a fascinating question. That's great. Okay. I love this. I love this assessment as forend of learning. So we, we're going to have to do a separate episode on grading. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we've got to talk about calculus classes, grading. Oh, yeah. I have all sorts of questions and things to say about that or questions to ask, I guess. Sure. All right. But let's not go there, at least at this point of the discussion. Let's talk about this ideal framework. You, you've mentioned it another, a number of times. Yes. Yeah. So let's, let's go there. Ideal. I-D-E-A-L. Yes. Yeah. So this is another component. This was another component of that um, Science Museum of Minnesota training that I mentioned. Uh, and it was the first time each one of these acronyms, I'm, I'm about to tell you what they mean. Each one of these words has, you know, is around, but it was one of the first times that it was packaged into, into a, certainly a nice acronym, but embedded within a framework that, that we were, we were using at this institute to sort of understand and wrap our heads around just systemic change. It was called the change agent program, systemic change in higher education based on things like inclusive excellence and, and similar frameworks. So the I in ideal is for inclusion. Then you have the D, diversity. Then you have E, equity. A is for access. Uh, and L is, is where you cheat and it's for belonging. <laughs> it doesn't start with a B. <laughs> but that, that's the framework. And in one of the, uh, some of the presentations that I give on inclusive excellence, I, I often point to this because I tell my colleagues and whoever I'm, whoever else is in the room that it's a fairly easy way to kind of check yourself as an educator to see if you really have any blind spots or to just explore what you could be doing on that inclusion piece of inclusive excellence. Each one of these words is itself an umbrella term, but inclusive excellence, you might just think inclusion. And there's all sorts of metaphors, and I, and I can't remember this, something like, you know, inclusion is being invited to the dance and, and uh, diversity is, right, all, all those sorts of things. And But but I, I, I like the ideal framework better because especially – the side of my brain that's mathy, I, I can view it as, as different dimensions. Um, I D E A L. So five different, have to count there, five different dimensions that you might want to think about as you're preparing your course, as you're engaging with your students, you're preparing the assessment system, inclusion, diversity, equity, access, belonging. And each one of those, if you're really going to take a deep dive, right? They, they're very different. They, they overlap in many ways, but it's just different. You know, you, you could you could have set up a very inclusive and welcoming environment, but no one feels like they belong. That is possible. Despite your best efforts, it's still there's just not something there's something that's not going right and students don't feel like they belong. Students might feel like they belong, but they might not have access to the resources and support they need, like in the pandemic with internet and laptops and all that. You might be coming at this with a really like an equity lens. You know, long story short, treat people differently for some sort of, you know, altruistic goal. Every student should excel. But the people in front of you might be very homogenous. So you, in the end, might not need to treat them that differently. And then you might wonder, like, who is being actively excluded? Who could be here that is not here that I could be helping to thrive? So, you know, each one of these being present does not mean that, you know, the, the, everything is, is done. And therefore, looking through all these different dimensions and thinking very critically, once you get all of them, then I think you're really starting to make some good progress toward inclusive excellence. 
Yeah. The one that it's not new, but, you know, inclusion, diversity, equity, access. We've been talking about those for some period of time. Yeah. Some people have been listening more than others for longer, whatever. But this adds the L or the, well, it should be a B, as you said, right. the belonging. And that seems to be a newer, hmm, the belonging. I'm sure there's been loads of pushback for many years against this idea that I as a faculty have to worry about the environment of the classroom, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But because, well, if you want all your students to succeed, you have to change your whole mindset around that right. and realize that this is a community and you have to care about this community and you have to show this community that you care about them and you, and you should care about them. I mean, if you're an educator and you're teaching, you should care. If you're an educator and you're teaching and you don't care, Maybe there's something else you should think about doing. And I'm going to push back against those who say, well, you should be an administrator. Administrators were faculty. And they, they administer because they care, yeah, not because they don't, at least the ones I, I know. So I don't want to go down that dark road. <laughs> but the belonging becomes important, and it just becomes such an issue again. And now I'm going to point to connected teaching with uh, harriet schwartz i don't know if you know this book called connected teaching i talk about it a lot it's about relational cultural theory this idea layered onto education mm -hmm. so i think the belonging becomes maybe the most important element here because if students feel they belong all these other issues get taken care of right because then they feel included they'll talk to you they'll they'll tell you what they need so access becomes sort of solved right if they feel that you care about them. So I think this relational aspect becomes almost the most important issue. It's not about data. It's about, so much of this is about belief. Students believe that you care. Right. And uh, to, to, to the earlier point about the faculty and, and how they might feel about these issues, I have great colleagues, I, I must admit, at Wellesley. Nevertheless, when we get to talking about issues of belonging, it's difficult because there is the sense that and especially during the pandemic, we as, as educators, we have a lot else going on. We have children, we have our parents, and there's a lot of stuff going on. And, and now you're asking me to do even more in the classroom. I think the, the way that I approach it, which I found success with, is reminding whoever we're talking to that we were all in the same place eons ago. We were all students at some point. And to just dig back to those experiences, and it's it's a little bit of a, of a corny question, but, you know, think back to the teacher that left the biggest impact on you. Everyone has an answer. However old you are, you know the details. You can probably picture the room. It was third grade, Mrs. Beale, I don't know. And it's that sort of engagement and that sort of connection that you want to foster with your student. And it's just an innate desire. And if you're in the education business, that's one of the things that would just light up your day. Who isn't made instantly happier when a student comes to you and is grateful and thankful and, and they're engaged. And so, you know, viewed from that perspective, it's one of those things where if, if you have to read a few studies, if you have to try a few things, do a Google Doc in class, if you have to do all these things, if that's the payoff, I think most educators will say, sign me up. I agree. You're much younger than I am. So you will have this experience. You will have students come back decades later and find you and thank you for what you've done or tell you that your course had an impact on them. And that's an unbelievable feeling when somebody comes back and finds you at some later point in life and, and lets you know the difference you've made in their life. Right. Yeah, that is the big payoff. Right. 
And so, you know, in, in my faculty development work, which I, which I kind of still do, and not formally as, as the faculty director of the learning center, but, you know, just with colleagues and, and, and thinking together and in shared ways, you know, I, I learn from them, they learn from me about, you know, how to become a better educator. This is one thing that I, that I found effective, you know, starting with the common shared altruism in all of us as educators, because it's easy to start on the other end and say, well, how much more work do I have to do? I don't have enough time to do it. But if you start from the other end of the spectrum of like, this is why we're here, you know, we're here to, to get that moment where a student is just like, that's it, I'm going to become a mathematician, you know, or I'm going to go out and, and, and become a, an English scholar and, and, or I'm going to, you know, teach, teach for America and, and help, you know, whatever that moment is, I think we as educators, that, that is what does it for us. I think all of us have that somewhere in our being and finding ways then to foster that in our students just instantly connects with people. And if you have to do a little bit more work, if you start in that sequence of the conversation, I find it more likely that they'll say, okay, fine. Tell me about this, you know, as of for learning thing, or okay, tell me about UDL, you know, maybe I'll, I'll try one thing. And the, the dirty little secret is that once they try one thing, <laughs> if you make it small enough, they'll, they'll come back. And they'll say, you know, I, Oscar, I tried this and, and this is the way it worked. Can you like help me? I'll be like, actually, yeah, here's another resource that we could look at. And it becomes really a fun sort of, you know, ongoing conversation. And it's great to have colleagues to have, the, have those conversations with. Definitely. Yeah. Plus one teaching straight out of Bailing and Tobin's book. Plus one teaching. Nice. Try one thing. So we're running along here. I'm going to have to have you back because we've got other things we need to talk about. We're not done quite yet, though. <laughs> I want you to take a moment to talk about lathisms. Let me say that again so people heard it. L, it starts with an L, lathisms. Can you tell us about that program that you're involved in? Sure, yeah. And I, I, I'll say my involvement is, is minimal. Lathisms was started by a group of, here comes the, it, it's Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin faculty who wanted to effectively, what we were talking about earlier, increase the visibility of that group of mathematicians in math in general. Like many of these efforts, it started small and it's kind of snowballed into something that has been really um, impactful in different ways. And one of the things they do is that every month, I believe, they profile a mathematician, I'll say a Latin mathematician, and the profile is really intended to showcase, uh, you know, a round up, rounded view of the person. So it's not your typical CV type, you know, this is where I got my PhD and this is what I do research in. You know, we really are encouraged to give them information about how we got to where we are, what motivates us, what keeps us going and, and what interests us and things like that. On the back end, there's all sorts of events and there's a newsletter. And I think some of the original founders have published a book. Um, so it really has snowballed into this kind of big effort. And it, it really is a term that is fairly recognizable in math circles now. Going back to this belonging for students who pre prior to Lathism's existence had to struggle to find Latino, Latina mathematicians out there. This is a, an organization that is providing that sort of in droves. I mean, there, there's so many people that are profiled and, and there's so many events that our department, for example, in, in their newsletter, we can advertise if we have a position, 
for associate professor, assistant professor or something, and that goes out to other people. So there's, there's aspects of how it impacts faculty of recruiting as well, not just students. It looks like it's been around at least since 2016, maybe a little earlier, but on their website, uh, they go back to 2016, showing their calendar and a list of people. Yeah. We'll put a link to that on, on the website uh, for this. Great. It, but it's easy to find, lathisms.org. Yeah. Easy to find. Okay. I want to end with a couple of questions. Concerning student success, mm-hmm. if you could wave your magic wand and have every faculty member do one thing, one what would that one thing be? The first thing that comes to mind, I would love every faculty member to switch places with a student that they have taught previously, whom they feel has underperformed or not lived up to their potential or some version of of just not met expectations that the faculty member set. And by switch places, I mean really switch places. So this is where it's completely infeasible. I would love the faculty member to, to be in that student's, be, basically assume their lived experience, to hopefully get a broad understanding of some of the inputs to the outputs that the faculty member recorded, let's say in a grade book or something. I feel like if this is one thing that, could happen, I think all of us would have a much richer and deeper understanding of our students and their lives. And I would think, I think it would fundamentally transform a lot of things for the better. I gave a presentation about inclusive excellence at the College of Holy Cross to the math and CS department not too long ago. And, and I almost started the presentation in a certain way. I ended up not doing it, but, but I'm going to describe the way I almost started it because it's very similar to, to this idea that I'm kind of uh, espousing. This was a presentation about inclusive excellence. And my initial thought is I, I wanted to relay some of what the students of the faculty in the room might feel in those faculty's courses. And it's very hard to communicate feelings. But I did come up with a way that I thought was just going to be genius. So I speak Spanish. That's my first language. And I I was banking on the fact that most people there would not speak Spanish. I had no idea at all. And my idea was I, I would come in and I would just start the presentation off in Spanish. And I would do this for maybe about a minute. And then I would ask questions along the way, assuming that the audience spoke Spanish. And then I would feign, like, not understanding why no one is responding. And then cut this off about a minute in and then have a reflective piece where I would ask the faculty, you know, let's just have an open conversation. By the way, I'm Oscar Fernandez. And, you know, I would switch to the English and do a sort of of more formal introduction. But have an open conversation about how did you feel as a faculty member being in a room where the person in front of the room, the expert, was talking to you and you, you, you could not understand what they were saying. And they were expecting you to understand this was the me feigning part, but you clearly did not. And what were the reverberations and and the sort of second and third order effects in your head? And I was kind of hoping that that would be an experience that would awaken portions of people in the room that might otherwise feel like, like you said earlier, maybe it's not my job to think about these sorts of things, right? Belonging or something like that and do this in a very visceral way. I ended up not doing this, but clearly I'm still interested in doing it. So maybe at some point I'll, mm. I'll, I'll try it out and report back. Well, you have to report back. That's, <laughs> that's interesting. 
uh, the last few questions is where we get a little more personal. You've displayed an amazing commitment to the principles of inclusive excellence. You care deeply about maximizing learning opportunities for the historically excluded, minoritized, and disenfranchised students. That seems to be what you're working on here. This is not what you learned when you were in your PhD program, or at least I suspect it was not what you learned in your PhD program. Was there a transformational moment in your academic career that crystallized your commitment to these issues? The short answer is is no, but only because it wasn't a moment. It was sort of a, a continuum. I was very fortunate to grow up in Miami, in Florida, you know, surrounded by a very rich culture, Latin culture. My family's from Cuba and they came here and I was born in the U.S. So I spoke Spanish before I spoke English. And there's a very, one of those, you know, traumatic moments. I remember in, in a elementary school, I didn't speak any English. There was um, a little girl who was, who was, I guess, assigned to me to translate for me while I started learning English in elementary school. Uh, and there was one time just, you know, because these things, these are kind of like the Steve Jobs. When you look back, you see the things, how they connect. This was one point where I, I, if I had to put a marker where it started, it was in kindergarten. <laughs> and wow. the worksheet said, ring the correct answer. And I was just starting to learn to read English in addition to speak English. So I, I drew a ring, a literal ring, like a wedding ring around all the correct answers. Teacher thought that I was mocking her and sent me to the corner of the room. There I stayed for, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. Again, it's one of these experiences that is, is vivid and um, left a mark on me. So many years later, one of the marks that was left on me is, again, the importance of understanding your students in multidimensional ways and getting to know them. There's so many ways I could speculate about where that teacher was. You know, maybe there's something going on that day. that you just missed this aspect. I don't know. But it really is since then that, that I've very personally been in environments where, you know, being someone for whom English is a second language, where I have felt that exclusion, that feeling of otherness. And then just moving through the educational system, eventually learning English in school and going off to, to college and having an experience which was overall positive. But looking around the room, you know, Miami is a lot, large Cuban population. You leave Miami and that's, that's hard to find. My undergraduate was in Chicago and it's certainly not large Cuban populations and just in general feeling out of place. And many students feel that, but when it's cultural and racial and linguistic, you know, you add those things, you really do have to come to terms at some point. Do I just go back? And I really did think maybe I'll just go back to Miami and I'll just transfer to University of Miami or stay at University of Chicago, which I eventually did. And so really, it's been a continuum from elementary school all the way up to in graduate school, I will mention at uh, University of Michigan, where I did my graduate work. One aspect that was really impactful is that there was a graduate student instructor training. Many large institutions have that. What was special about Michigan, and Michigan, I think, does does math training especially well, is that there was a theater component to it. So one of the aspects of the training was theater students came in and put on a performance. They, they had a professor and they had a few students and they kind of acted out some of the issues that you would see in a classroom, maybe a disengaged student, maybe a professor that doesn't notice. And we, as the sort of graduate students in the audience, got to have this participatory 
aspect where where we we felt safe to kind of critique and have a dialogue because we were not doing that. Although like the day after we would actually go into classrooms and teach. But I think it was a phenomenal learning experience. And again, speaks to, you know, you could feel for the student that was being ignored, even though you clearly it's a it's a play, it's a drama, but it had a really lasting effect on on again that that aspect of, of my education. Interesting. I love that we you picked a moment going back to kindergarten. I mean, that's that's incredible. Yeah. Right. That you remember it so vividly. Right. Right. You're six years old ish. Right. And that yeah, that's that's amazing. That's great. Okay, one one last question. Sure. So through this lens of yours, when you walk out the door, when you leave campus, when you go home, when you walk out into your community in Wellesley, when you go to Boston, when you you know the community you live in now, how has your work on inclusive excellence impacted how you see or interacted with the rest of the universe around you? I don't want to hear about students. I don't want to hear about faculty. Just the rest of your life. Inclusive excellence for me has always been a sort of um, extension, maybe if that's adequate enough word, of what I've been involved in. I'll just say it that way. I don't want to say I've been trying to do. It's it's deeper than that. I'm just. It's part of who I am, driven in part by the experiences I've had, but also by just some of the philosophies about teaching but really it i would say it's it's on the on the smaller end of a bigger commitment i would say to just treat people humanely to treat people in ways that bring out the best in them to try to support them to get to know them enough to know how i how i can help how i can be supportive sometimes the answer is don't get involved just to to get to know people as people and not as a data point or as a row on a spreadsheet and again, I, I don't want to imply that if that's all you do, then, then somehow you're evil. I, I also don't think that's true. I prefer the and usually versus the, the or. And in math, we, we tend to default to an in- inclusive or, which I always thought was, was interesting. A or B or both is assumed in a definition. Mm-hmm. I think the idea of, of inclusive excellence is something that ranges and goes beyond education. As you kind of alluded to in your question, when I go home from Wellesley, I have a nine-year-old, I have a six-year-old, and, and they're wonderful little girls. I am constantly thinking about whether one of them is feeling excluded because the nine-year-old is is more capable with certain things like just gross motor skills than the six-year-old. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly trying to find that balance as a parent. And then similar things, you know, we walk to school. Sometimes I want to make sure that I, I am adding those experiences of walking to school versus always driving to school. So I'm thinking in different ways about inclusion that doesn't really have anything to do with excellence per se, but sometimes I also just think about excellence in ways that don't really have anything to do with inclusion per se. When I'm doing my research, for example, I really am focused on trying to add to the scholarship on whatever I'm writing about in a way that's just an excellent contribution. I don't tend to think too much about my particular contribution to that, which might layer on the inclusion piece. So so these for me are kind of shifting aspects of a lived experience that is fundamentally interdependent and holistic. And that's sort of what I would use as, as a characterization for what inclusive excellence at the core is. And if you keep those 
you know, holistic and interdependent, those worldviews, you bring it to your education, whether you're doing inclusive excellence or not, I think it'll just benefit everyone. Thanks. Love that. I also have two daughters, so I don't know anything about boys. <laughs> mine, are, mine are a little older than six and nine. I think, Oscar, I think we'll call it a day right there. I want to thank you so much for spending time with me today. The students are and faculty are dealing in many ways these days openly about these issues. All universities are struggling with and ensuring that their diverse student populations thrive. At least I hope universities are struggling with those issues. I think these are important topics to talk about and think about and implement. Thank you again. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much. Yes. And thank you, Steve. Having conversations like this are part of what gets the momentum going and gets people learning about each other. And back to the interdependence, if we can do more of this, we'll all learn from each other and I think end up a little bit better. A little bit better. That's all it takes. A little bit better every day, right? That's right. That's right. Cool. All right. For more information about Dr. Oscar Fernandez, his research and favorite papers, please go to our website, teachingforstudentsuccess.org. Thank you for spending time with us today. Please share our podcast and website with your friends, colleagues, and administrators. We love hearing from our listeners. Please contact us through our website. If an episode, if this episode has impacted your teaching, please send us a note and let us know what impacted you, what you've done in your classroom, and how it's impacted your students. Teaching for Student Success is a production of Teaching for Student Success Media, Let's end this podcast with some music of Julius H. Some of Julius's music can be found on Pixabay. Pixabay.